1 verse 4. We are talking about the ascension of Jesus this morning, and once again, there's uh, handouts back here in the back. We will loosely follow this, but uh, we'll make some comments and uh, go maybe some different directions than what that's revealed on the handout there. Um, but that's more extra information for you to be able to look at and, uh, and to uh, make some comments and some applications on your own personal Bible study. Acts chapter 1, verse <clears throat> And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times of the seasons which the fathers put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witness to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when they had spoken these things, as they watched, he was taking up and a cloud received them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up to you and sent into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. As we look at the timeline of Jesus, um, I get kind of uh, um, uneasy a little bit when we talk about timeline because usually that indicates that there was a beginning at some point and there was uh, some kind of end at some point. We know that Jesus is uh, um, uh, one with the Father. We know that he is God. And so, therefore, we can't necessarily talk about Jesus in terms of he had a beginning like some religious groups try and say. But when we begin to talk about the timeline of just the events that we know about, uh, about our Savior, we can talk about him in terms of his pre-existence, as we just mentioned. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and we know that he had a pre-existence before this earth and before all that was created. Speaking of which, we read that in the book of Colossians, particularly chapter 1, that he is elemental in creation. He is the one that was the creative word, the creative power, the creative force behind everything that was seen and behind uh, everything that was made. Uh, without him, there was nothing that was made that was made. Uh, he's the power, the icon of the invisible God. We talk about Jesus and his incarnation. John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yes, we know that everything that God had been doing all the way from, uh, uh, from the time that man sinned up until the time that Christ was born was to bring him about. And so God having to call a holy man, Abraham, a man who is called a friend of God, and out of Abraham, giving Abraham a heritage of, through uh, the 12 tribes and to create a people through which he could bring the Messiah, the Hebrew people, the Israelites. And as he was uh, working to try and refine these people and get to them, them to the point where it was that they could uh, that that uh, the nation would be ready uh, in the fullness of time, Galatians four verse four. Uh, God is working all about to bring about the incarnation of Jesus. We talk about the suffering of Jesus. Um, Todd did a lesson on that several weeks ago and talking about his suffering, and especially um, his death in Matthew twenty-seven verse fifty. Uh, he finished up uh, everything that he had been working towards on this earth. John nineteen verse thirty. He cried, "It is finished." The redemptive work of man was complete with the death of Jesus. But then we talk about his burial as well, because uh, he was laid in the tomb, but the glory of the resurrection and the fact that 
there was no uh, no way that death could hold on to him. Why not? Why could death not keep him, as Peter would talk about in Acts chapter 2 in the preaching of the church? He was raised by the Father. Why was he raised by the Father? Why did death have no claim on him? There was what? To show God's power, yes. We're getting there. Why is it? He had victory over death. Why did he have victory over death? Because he's God, which also implies that he is eternal. He is sinless. It's impossible for God to lie, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. Brothers and sisters, please don't miss this point. And again, I'm trying to work it out of you. I know that you know it. Jesus lived and died a sinless life. Why did death have no claim on him? Because he had no sin. Because he had no sin. We know that Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Jesus went into that tomb, because he experienced that death, whenever it was that, uh, that he was raised, it was because the power of death had no hold on him, because he had no sin. When Adam and Eve initially committed that sin way back in Genesis chapter 3, what was the penalty? The penalty was death. There was a physical death, but there was also a spiritual death that they died. But because Jesus had no sin, death had no claim on him. Yes, and absolutely, it proved the fact that he was God. Yes, it was the fact that uh, the power of the Father raised him from the dead. But it did so because he was sinless. Now, because you and I are covered with the blood of Jesus, because it is that we are baptized into the name of Christ, because we have our sins washed away in the waters of baptism, that's Romans chapter 6. As we are raised to walk in newness of life, brothers and sisters, we commit sin, but we are not sinners. Bible never calls a child of God who's trying to do what's right a sinner. It is that as I walk in the light, just as he is in the light, that blood continually cleanses me from my sin. And as it is, as God looks at me, he sees a perfect ten, just like Jesus. So it is that death has no claim on me, which says that once I go into that grave or the Lord comes first, it is that I'm not going to stay in that grave. I'm going to be raised to the resurrection of life. Something to think about as we're flying over. So we talk about the resurrection and the importance of it, and we mentioned that last week in our Bible class. Here is where we are in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, and talking about the ascension, just so that you know. Uh, the rest of the places that we can talk about is the sitting down of Jesus. As he ascended back into heaven, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus' redemptive work was finished, and he sat down at the uh, right hand of the Father, the position of power and the position of authority, and he sat down because of what was prophesied in Psalm 110, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, and uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the time when Jesus Christ is coming back. It's appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We await for Christ to come back second time apart from sin unto salvation. He's coming back in order to receive his own, just the same way as we read just a moment ago from the angels and the way that they testified about him. What's going to happen after that? God is going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to give a crown of life to those who are, uh, who are righteous, those who are faithful, those who are, have loved his appearing, as uh, Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. And then ultimately, last thing that we know about is that we will be with him 
forever. We will forever be with the Lord. First um, Thessalonians chapter four. Uh, we're always going to be in His presence, in the presence of um, God, in the presence of the Lamb. All right. And as we talk about the ascension this morning. Just keep in mind where this is here in the timeline. We're still waiting on several events that are going to happen, particularly uh, as it relates to our Savior and about his coming. But here we are in talking about the ascension and the importance of it and uh, just some details and some facts around it. All right. Facts about the ascension. Number one, it happened about 40 days after the resurrection. That's Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke gives his prologue, his introduction about why it is that he's uh, continuing this, uh, if you like, the sequel to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive. Who did he present himself to? I got to look back up to the uh, uh, immediate antecedent there in verse 2. He, through his Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive by his suffering, or after his suffering, by many infallible proofs seen by them during 40 days, and speaking to God of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. How long was Jesus here on this earth after his resurrection? He was 40 days, exactly right. Time was 40, uh, 40 days, and note that the resurrection had also been predicted repeatedly. It had been predicted repeatedly. A number of different contexts, you can just uh, jot these down, or they're, uh, maybe they're on your sheet for you um, to take a look at. John 6 and verse 63, and asking those Jews, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Okay, Jesus saying, I'm going to go back to the Father. Would that, would that make you believe? Would that make you uh, understand that I was sent from God? I'm trying to argue with these people and then tell them, listen, I've got witnesses. I've got testimony that my witness is true. Um, what if it was that you could see me ascend back into heaven? Would you believe me then and believe my testimony then? John 14 and verse 12, speaking to his apostles just before uh, his crucifixion. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works I, that I do, he will also do. And greater works than, uh, than these he will do because I go to my father. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that once his glorification occurred, after his resurrection, where is he going to go? He's going to send back into heaven and uh, send the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about in just a moment. John 20, verse 17. Jesus uh, speaking to Mary uh, there at the, at the garden tomb. So Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and my God and your God. Jesus came to reveal the Father to these people. Jesus came to reveal the Father to all of us. But Jesus also gave us the right to be able to call God our Father. As Gentiles, those of us who are from a um, non-Jewish background, Christ gave us that right to be called the children of the Father. And it is as we live our lives and our, 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 um, go from day to day that we can call upon God at any time because of what Jesus did for us. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, he blessed us with every heaven, uh, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Christ. Here is a picture of Mount of Olives um, out there for the, where the resurrection is. This is back um, looking from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. 
uh, into um, onto the Mount of Olives. All right, there's a, a whole lot there. This uh, <laughs> that probably wasn't there at the time of Christ, but you understand that that's um, you know um, progress, I guess. But anyway, location was the Mount of Olives, Acts chapter one, verse two. And note also that he was taken up and he was received out of sight. He was taken up uh, from them, verse 9, uh, in a cloud, received out of their sight. There was a point where they saw him, they saw him, they saw him, they saw him. They didn't see him. Anybody ever do that with a balloon? <laughs> We've had some tragic experiences with balloons uh, as, <laughs> with our children, you know. But, uh, yeah, that child that haplessly lets go of that balloon and then just watches it until it is that you get it so small that you just can't see it anymore. You know, the balloon's there somewhere, but it's just that you can't see him. I think about Christ and just those disciples just standing there for maybe minutes or maybe, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe an hour or two, you know, for it as the angels came back to him and said, why are you just looking up into the sky? Go back to Jerusalem, wait, uh, like he told you to. And uh, and that's that. So take it up and received out of sight, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. But note also with this, also, this ascension, there's also the promise of him coming back how? In the same way he went up. That's exactly right. The same way he went up. The same Jesus who was taken out of your sight uh, into heaven will come in like verse 11 as you saw him go into heaven. They returned to Jerusalem from Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, the Sabbath day journey. Um, questions or comments about just the facts or just uh, anything we've talked about just uh, before we application. Janice was commenting on the, uh, the balloon illustration, saying, you know, for parents with young children to teach them, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, say, I'm sorry, that balloon is not coming back no matter how many tears and how, you know, how much screaming and blood curdling, you know, anyway. <laughs> You can imagine the scene, you know, not in the Baker household per se, but you understand. Um, but you, you know, just saying it's not coming back, but then realizing that that's not the same way with our Savior. One day, sometime in the mind of the Father, it is that he's going to appoint Jesus and say it's time. And Christ is going to come back in the same way that he left. Um, Behold, every eye shall see him. How's that going to happen? I don't know. But it is. If you can imagine the sky, the clouds being rolled back as a scroll, as we sing, and it is well with my soul. Clouds being rolled back as a scroll, and everything that occupies our time, and our efforts, and our talents, and our resources, and everything that we devote our time to, you know what? All of that's going to pale in comparison as our eyes are fixed upon the one who's coming back in the same way that he left. Something to think about. Something to think about. Good, uh, good point. Uh, others? Second Thessalonians chapter one, Morris mentions uh, those who come uh, when he comes back, revealed it from heaven with his mighty angels and vengeance taking uh, and flaming fire, taking vengeance upon those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's first second uh, Thessalonians one, nine and ten. Um, too many people. To some of our friends and some of our neighbors, yes, and even to some Christians, 
the Lord is going to come back and his coming back is going to be a terror. A terror. You remember how you felt on 9-11 whenever you saw those images repeatedly flashed and how it is just the wave of horror and shock and the stomach dropping and all those things. I can't imagine. I mean, I could imagine that day and remember that day in the way that I felt, but I can't imagine feeling that and realizing, listen, all hope is gone. I've exhausted my possibilities. I've exhausted all my time. The patience of the Lord has finally run out. That's... Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God doesn't want that day for anybody. And brothers and sisters, if we're following after God, we shouldn't want that day for anybody else. You have people that wish horrible things on other people. Well, you know what? You can just go to hell. Again, if we're following after the Father, if we're following after the Spirit of Jesus, we don't want that in for anybody. God knows how bad it is, and because he knows how bad it is, and he didn't want his creation to suffer that, what did he do? He sent the best of heaven to save us from the worst of punishments or the worst of fates. It's a good point. Uh, Stan, do you have something? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, a little bit more lengthy discussion than what we have time for, but uh, Stan asked the question, he said, um, he told the thief on the cross today, that you'll, this day you'll be with me in paradise, and yes, that's absolutely true, but whenever he came back, he told Mary there in the garden, listen, I haven't yet descended to my father, and Stan's asking is, you know, paradise and heaven where uh, God lives, where God's throne is, um, are those two different places? The answer is yes. And just a simple, uh, uh, simple answer. Um, where Jesus went whenever it was that, um, um, whenever it was that he died was into the realm of, uh, Hades. All right. It comes from a Greek word meaning, um, uh, not to see. Okay. So it's the place where we can't see. Um, it is the realm of the dead. It's the realm of the, the, the departed. And knowing that there's two different places in Hades, there's a place called Torment um, from the rich man of Lazarus, but there's also the place called Paradise or Abraham's bosom. Um, but yes, it's different than going to heaven. Um, sometimes you'll hear somebody, well, I know that uh, old Joe is somewhere and he's in, in heaven. He's looking down on us. Well, I understand what they're trying to say, but that's not really biblical as far as, you know, what it is that we, uh, we have revealed. Again, there's a waiting place for the time when all the spirits are going to come out of the grave, when all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come forth, as Jesus mentioned in the book of John, uh, chapter 11, I believe. And as the people come out of the grave, then it is that you have the final judgment where people are going to either go to heaven or they're either going to hell, depending on sheep or goats, Matthew 25, um, depending on uh, their response to the gospel and their response to uh, Jesus, right? So good question. Good question. Yes, sir. Quickly this time. Okay. I, I have been taught, I've heard over and over that this, on the cross, when Jesus apparently forgave this person, mm -hmm. it was a case of clemency, which probably can't be granted by anyone other than Jesus. That's right. That's right. 
Okay. Yeah, and Jesus pronouncing that on the people on the cross, there's a number of things we don't know about his background. He could have been baptized with the baptism of John. Um, but again, you don't know a whole lot about the thief on the cross, but that may be another lesson for another time, but that's, uh, that's a good point. All right. And we are beginning to chase rabbits. So we're going to bring it back and, uh, and come on back and then we'll, we'll discuss that at some, uh, some further. Hey, how about the Ascension? He's going to return as he left <laughs> the post Ascension ministry. Note that, number one, Jesus' redemptive work is finished. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Hebrews is written to who? All right, it's Christians, but it's also with a, what kind of background? A Hebrew or a Jewish background. And the issue is, is that here's some people that are wanting to give up and go back into Judaism. Here's some people that are looking at Christianity and saying it's way too hard, okay? Uh, I, if things were easier back when I was living my Jewish life, my Jewish family, and all these things, and, and they'd come out of that. And what the Hebrews writer is going to try and tell them over and over and over again is, listen, everything that Christ offers is better. That's the key word of the book of uh, Hebrews. Note what he's going to say here in verse 3 about Jesus. Uh, look, start back at verse 2. Uh, God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, that's Colossians chapter 1, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person, that's John chapter 1, verse 14, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As he develops this theme through the book of Hebrews, he's going to talk about Jesus as the high priest. Now, if you know anything about the high priest, what, did, what was his responsibilities on a yearly basis? To go into the most holy place and to offer atonement for the people. And he would have to do that year by year and year after year after year after year. The priestly duties were always needing to be done. You know, it's kind of like laundry. Uh, it's always got to be done. But as these people continually offer these sacrifices, it was in, in effect to get these people to drive them to the point to say, wouldn't it be wonderful if we just had a one time for all sacrifice? As Christ came, he became that perfect lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Question, why was death not able to hold on Jesus? Because he had no sin. Awesome. <laughs> And I refrain from saying air fist bumps all around, but you understand. As we talk about Jesus and his sinlessness, Jesus was also the perfect high priest. He didn't serve after the order of Levi. He served after the order of Melchizedek. Again, another theme that Hebrews develops. Jesus was fit to be a heavenly high priest. He went boldly into the most holy place, and one time for all, he offered that sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice, where God says, you know what? Those people that are covered with your blood, they're good. And Jesus, after he was done, he sat down. I can't imagine these priests, you know, and trying to find a moment's rest during their temple service during the day and wanting to just sit down and just rest for a minute. Oh, nope, here comes another sacrifice. Oh, nope, here comes another person that needs atonement. Oh, nope, here comes another person that uh, needs to offer something. They didn't have a moment's rest. They constantly were up and about doing things. The Bible says Jesus, after he offered that sacrifice, he sat down. His redemptive work was finished when he cried, John 19, verse 30, it is finished. Everything that he had been working towards and his part in, uh, in the redemptive plan was finished. It was done. Uh, 
But note also, in the redemptive work being done, the purpose as he went back into heaven was for him to send the Holy Spirit. Flip back and let's take a look at a couple of these back in the book of John, beginning chapter 14. These are great verses for you to know about the work of the Holy Spirit, what it is that the Spirit does, and why it is that the Spirit was given. But please don't miss the context. Who are we talking to, or who is Jesus talking to, rather? He's talking to his apostles. They're there on the night before they go out into the garden, before Jesus offers those prayers, before he's uh, betrayed and arrested and all of those things. As he's trying to give comfort and as he's comforting these apostles, note what he's going to say beginning in chapter 14, verse 17. Let's start at 16. And I will pray the Father that he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you uh, with you, and will be in you. All right. Here's the word uh, helper, comforter. Um, some might say um, um, counselor, advocate. The word is parakletos. It's a helper. It's, a, um, it's one who is called to the side, a paraclete. Here's one that's going to um, help these people and help these apostles, who is also, as he calls in verse 17, the spirit of the truth. Look down at verse 26. He's going to describe it just a little bit more. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. All right. Who is going to send the Holy Spirit? All right. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. When did the Father send the Holy Spirit? Is after the ascension. Exactly right. What was the purpose for the Holy Spirit being sent? To be a comforter, to be a helper. But what does he say here in this verse? He's going to teach them all things and bring to their remembrance everything that Jesus said to him. I have a hard time remembering what uh, people say to me from one day to the next. Can you imagine a three and a half year timeline where you're spending every single day with this teacher and trying to remember and say, that sounds poignant. I need to remember that. Oh, that sounds Everything he's coming out of his mouth is poignant. Everything I say coming out of his mouth is important. Here's Jesus saying, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go away from you. But it's to your advantage that I go away from you, because if I go away from you, Christ, uh, the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit in my name so that you can have a remembrance of everything that I taught you, of everything that I said to you, right? Uh, take a look down in chapter 16. Chapter 16. I'll tell you what, let's uh, jump back up to 15, uh, since you're there. 1526. Here's another description about the, the comforter or the helper. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Would the apostles need miraculous memory to remember everything that Christ said in exactly the way that he said it? The answer is yes. Are they going to need something to help them to be able to testify of Jesus accurately and according to everything that he said and not impose their own will and their own wants and own wishes in that teaching? And the answer is yes. How did that happen? The answer is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. 
Look down at chapter 16 and verse 13. 16 and 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. There's a lot of misconception today about what the Holy Spirit does and what the Holy Spirit has done in the past. If you just let the Bible speak, what you're going to notice, as the Spirit was revealed to these people, as the Spirit was given to the apostles, the purpose for the Spirit being given was so that they could make an accurate testimony of Jesus to the world. So that they could tell the world everything that the Father had told them. But if you want a summary statement of what the Spirit did, look there at verse 14. He will glorify me. Everything that the Spirit did in the revelation of him and the giving of him was to point people to Jesus. It wasn't to point people to himself or anything else. It was to point him to Jesus and say, this is the one we need to know. This is the one that we need to obey and respect. He's the one who you need to listen to. Okay? And as we follow what the apostles taught, who are we also following? Jesus, who are we also following? The apostles, who are we also following? God, who are we also following? The Holy Spirit. We're following after the Spirit by adhering to the things that were revealed about Jesus. As we follow the Word, we're following the Spirit. As we follow the Holy Spirit, we're following Jesus. As we're following Jesus, we're following the Father who sent Jesus. All of these things fall right in line. You follow the apostles, the apostles followed the Spirit. Spirit followed Jesus. Spirit, Jesus followed the Father. And all the way back from the bottom to the top, as we follow the Word, which has been revealed from the apostles by the Holy Spirit, we're following the Father. It's a chain of command. You understand that from the military, and you understand that in the military application, that here's the general that gives the order, and the, as the order is followed down all the way down to the lowest level, lowest member of the, of the army unit, he's following faithfully everything that's been conveyed as it's been conveyed, right? He sent the Holy Spirit to guide these apostles into all truth. Question, when was the Holy Spirit given in his fullness? After his resurrection, specifically when? After his ascension, it was the day of Pentecost. It was after these apostles had seen him raised into heaven, ascend into heaven. They went and they waited on in Jerusalem for what? What did we read from Acts chapter 1? Flip back there. <laughs> Folks, when we can connect the dots, it's going to be like a light bulb moment in our heads. But if we miss a connection, then, uh, then it's not necessarily going to make sense. What did Jesus say, verse 7 and 8 of chapter, Acts chapter 1? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What were they waiting for in Jerusalem? They were waiting for the Spirit. When was the Spirit given? Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. 
costume. They were all gathered together in one accord in one place. And suddenly there was a sound as of a rushing mighty wind that filled the house where they were sitting. Right? Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and sat upon them. Verse 4 of Acts chapter 2. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. What were they speaking? They're speaking a message. They're speaking, speaking different languages. But what are they speaking about? Rather, who are they speaking about? It's not about the awesomeness of the Spirit. But the Spirit's purpose is to glorify Jesus. They're speaking a message about Jesus in his risen state. They're speaking about Jesus in a message of the resurrection and the hope that it gives mankind. So much so that the people, after they heard the message about Jesus, they cried out to Peter, saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts 2.37. And Peter gave them the very first invitation that was offered in the Christian era. Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. The Holy Spirit told him to say that. Where did the Holy Spirit get his message from? It's from Christ. Where did Christ get his message from? From the Father. As these men were speaking with authority, the message of the Spirit, and as they followed the Spirit in their lives and the Spirit's revelation, so also that they made an accurate recorded language and an accurate recorded account of everything that the Spirit wanted them to, these Christians, these new Christians to know. And they continued steadfastly. Look down at verse 40, 42. These new Christians, about 3,000 of them, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking and bread of prayers. Question, why did they have the authority to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? To promote the gospel. To promote the gospel. Who were the apostles following? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Through, the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Exactly right. You see it? The Spirit was given to them so that they could make an accurate witness and testimony of Jesus Christ. That only happened after his ascension. Hey, we've come full circle. <laughs> Jesus is now reigning as king over his kingdom. Jesus is now reigning. To, he ascended to receive the kingdom. Ephesians 1, 20, verse 23. Uh, he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might, dominion and every name that's named, not only in this world, but also the world that is to come. Christ is currently reigning. Christ is reigning now. Um, you know, we sing, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Or um, what's the other one that's, uh, that's kind of a newer song? We bow down and we crown you the king. We bow down, we crown you the king. Here's the truth of the matter, folks. Jesus is king whether we crown him that or not. Now, certainly in poetic license, we can say, I'm going to crown you the king of my life, but Jesus is going to be king and there's nothing we can do to stop that. Right? We can submit to his authority, but he's already been crowned the king. And so we, uh, <laughs> the only thing we have left to do is to respect him in his kingdom. He is reigning now. The kingdom is immovable. Daniel 2 verse 44. He received the kingdom when he ascended um, and he's reigning at the right hand of God. And that kingdom was established in the same day that the Holy Spirit was given there in Acts chapter 2. Folks, we can't underscore the importance of Acts chapter 2. If there's a wheel on which the rest of the Bible rotates, Acts chapter 2 is the center. It's the completion of the redemptive plan of God to bring about a people, to redeem people from the curse of sin that would happen all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Sir? Our recognition of that is 
extremely important, and that's that's how I sing those songs and and, uh, and feel like it's right, it's proper. Right, right. The issue is, is that there's a lot of people that are writing from the fact that they believe Jesus is going to come back and establish an earthly kingdom. You know, um, there's a lot of idea and misconception based primarily out of the, the book of Revelation that we're waiting for Jesus to come back and establish an earthly kingdom. Here's the thing. We're in the kingdom. Um, Colossians chapter one, verse 13. Um, there's some uh, friends that we have maybe in Jehovah's Witness, and they're trying to teach us that the kingdom is still coming. This kingdom is still out there. Colossians 1.13 is a key verse to know if you're talking to those people because it says he translates us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And the question is, is the kingdom still coming? What is Colossians 1.13 talking about? His kingdom is here. His kingdom is present. We are part of his kingdom. Revelation 1 verse 5, he washed us from our sins in, our, in his own blood. He made us a kingdom of priests. That's present. We're a kingdom. We're priests. That's present. Uh, yes, Doug. Yes. Yes. One of the easiest um, Bible uh, summation summaries, Genesis to Malachi is pointing to the fact somebody's coming or a king is coming. Matthew through John says a king is here. Acts through Revelation says a king is coming again or the king is coming again. And that's uh, absolutely important to remember. Very good. What has Jesus been doing since his ascension? Note that he is making intercession for us. He's praying. He's interceding for his people. Flip over and look at this one here, please, from uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Therefore, the Bible says, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him, for them, rather. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and because, uh, has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and for the people. For this he did uh, once. For all, when he offered up himself. Okay? What is Jesus' current ministry? What has he been about for the last 2,000 years since his ascension? And the answer is, part of it has been to make intercession for us. Look just for a moment, uh, just a few pages over, probably in your Bible, to First uh, John chapter 2. First John chapter two, uh, verse one, my little children, says John, these things I write to you. Hold on. How did John have the authority to write these things to these people? All right. Through the Holy Spirit. Thank you. 
so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus makes intercession for us. He's a go-between, between the Father and between man. Jesus is also an advocate for us. Here's the thing. When you're tempted and you fail, can you imagine Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father and turning to the Father and saying, and again, I don't know how this looks, but for how it happens, and I speak very reverently and respectfully, God, I know what it's like to be tempted. I know how hard it is to resist. God, you need to forgive this person as he's asking for it, because I can tell you exactly how it feels. God, who became flesh, who identified with us, who sympathizes with us, and then was able to go back into heaven and sit down at the right hand of the Father, is the perfect go-between. God's spirit. God can't be tempted with evil. James chapter 1 tells us that. But as Christ came down and experienced the temptations, not only in the wilderness for 40 days, but also throughout his ministry, the time that he had to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan, the time whenever it was that he was praying in the garden, saying, Abba, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go through this. Now it is that he's sitting there at the right hand of the Father, acting as our advocate. You have an advocate, he's for you. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to do well. But as it is, as he's making intercession also for us and letting the Father know, listen, I know what it's like to be human. I know what it's like to fail. I know what it's like to be in that situation. He is that because he has that unique position to be both God and man. How does that happen? But I know if I deny that, I've denied one of the core truths of the Bible. He makes intercession for us. He always lives to make intercession for us. But that also ought to not cause me to say, I got a man in heaven. I'm okay, so I'm going to go out and live my life however I want to. Again, if he's your savior, if he's your Lord, if he's your king, you're going to make and order your life around him so that you don't disappoint, so that you don't continually fall to the same temptation over and over and over. And Jesus, when he was here on this earth, his apostles revealed in the book of Matthew that uh, when if your right hand causes you to sin, you cut it off, you cast it from you. Your right eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out, you cast it from you. You remove that which is a temptation which is causing you to stumble. But as it is, as I live and grow to be more like Jesus, I know that he's with me every step of the way. And I also know that he's there in heaven making intercession for me, acting as a go-between, acting as an advocate on my behalf before the Father to say he's covered with my blood. He's trying to walk in the light. He is walking in the light. But he's still committing sin. He's still having trouble. And as you think about that, what a powerful thought that is. He is sitting to be the mediator, to be the advocate, to be the go-between, the, the one who um, is continually reconciling us to God. Interesting. Jesus is ministering as high priest. We've already mentioned that a number of times, but uh, it's worth mentioning. Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. He is ministering as high priest. He finished the work. He sat down. He is communing with his people in the Lord's Supper. Communing with his people in the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11. 
I haven't heard the bell again, but uh, it looks like we're almost out of time. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm oh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we do this in his memory, we also recognize the fact that he is present with us. Um, that song that ta talks about he's here, he's the one who breaks the bread. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning or not recognizing the Lord's body. Here's the truth of the matter as far as our Lord's Supper observance. We have an opportunity to focus on the bread, the unleavened, the broken body of Jesus, and to say, I'm part of that. We are the body of Christ. We are the church that he established. As we partake of the fruit of the vine, it's not some kind of symbolic cleansing of us, but it is that we're made clean because of his blood. And as we talk about what gives us life and what <laughs> gives us redemption from our sins. We partake of that blood, that we partake of that, uh, that fruit of the vine representation of his blood, and we know that I'm part of him. And we do so because he's here with us. He's gathered with us to partake of the Lord's Supper as we, uh, as we partake of the Lord's Supper. That's an important point to remember as far as that goes. He is a blessing to those who evangelize. A blessing to those who evangelize. Again, last words were Matthew recorded. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you. What's the last part of it? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And as we accomplish the message and the mission of evangelism and living our lives for him, and showing people his glory and pointing people to Jesus just like the Holy Spirit did. As we do that faithfully, we know that the Lord is with us. And we know that he's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. Thank you all so much for your attention and for your participation. And we will begin our worship here in just a moment. <laughs>